We are in chapter 12, actually the last couple verses of 11 and 12 to, uh, from, to verse 36 of chapter 12, another huge portion. Next week is small in comparison. <clears throat> Remember the outline that we looked at, the breaking up of uh, John's gospel is taken into two parts, chapters 1 through 12, is the book of signs. So as you can see, we're at chapter 12, so we're coming to the end of that section, and we're transitioning into a new section called the book of glory, where we actually see who Jesus is in, in his glory and how he presents his glory to his disciples. And the last portion of this uh, gospel, uh, most of it, if, I'm sorry, half of, of this gospel is uh, pretty much focused upon the last couple days of Jesus' life. Uh, so it it's, shows quite the importance of Jesus' teaching to his disciples during that time and where John's focus is. Uh, so I hope that you can see the division of that as you hear the language, as we look at the passages, as we see the different focus of John who composed this gospel in a, in a particular way for a particular reason. And uh, hopefully you see that we've come to that seventh sign of raising of Lazarus, uh, that pinnacle of, of uh, what he has his dominion over death and his dominion over all of creation. And the pinnacle of creation is humanity, and yet he has dominion over that as well. We see Jesus having that. So he's revealing himself as, as uh, something different than what other people have been thinking of. We see in verse of 55 of chapter 11, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is the third and the last Passover that we've seen this is uh, the third Passover and the last post-Passover. Let me say it this way. This is the Passover, the one that we've been all waiting for. Uh, John's been waiting for and leading up to this point. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country of Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus. And saying to one another as they stood in the temple, Who, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? They're questioning. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, so John gives us a time frame, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, meaning not Lazarus, but Jesus. Martha served, and Lazarus was one, of the reclining, was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed, anointed excuse me, the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of, of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for the 300 denarii and given to the poor? That's a year's wage. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was uh, put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on the account of him but also to see Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So you can see how determined they were, because their place, as they said last week we looked at, our place and our nation are in danger. Not only are they trying to kill Jesus, they're also trying to get rid of the evidence. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And, the Jews, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written. It, it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Now realize, John was one of the disciples. 
And John was writing this, so you realize John didn't have a clue either. <laughs> it's pretty, I think it's pretty, you read this, you say, well, John's got this insight, but John was one of the clueless as well. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been, done, uh, had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was, be, was that they heard that he had done this sign. Remember, no wasted words with John. That meant something when he says that sentence. So the phrase said to, said to one another, excuse me, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was uh, from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went to, and told Jesus. And Jesus answered, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose have I come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and it will glorify it again. And I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show that what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Let's pray. Father, we do again thank you for giving us light of Christ. We thank you for telling us and reminding us that we are not the light, but we are bearers of the light. And we carry the light of the world in our very hearts and by the very gospel we present. And I pray that, Lord, again, we recalibrate ourselves, we remind ourselves that we are reminded by your word, as your word teaches us, that your word is a light to us and a lamp for us. And in that, Father, I pray that as we see ourselves, even in the words of these followers of, of Jesus, that we are thankful that we are no longer just these kind of followers, but that we are following you. And Father, if there are those who are here today that are just following you for other reasons, Father, I pray that you change their hearts so that they come to understand what it truly means to follow you. Thank you, Lord, for your sovereign grace over our lives. Thank you for the, uh, the efficacious grace and mercy that you've given to us in Jesus that is not just common, but it is special, that our hearts have been changed. We are not just titillated or that we are not stimulated by a provocative person, but that we understand who you are, that you are the Savior of the world. And we thank you for being our Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Something that uh, kind of uh, took me and uh, made me think a uh, few things here. Uh, this morning, and as I read this passage, is this very lar the very last couple verses. It says, so that the light is among, uh, in verse 35, so Jesus says that the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And again, I can't help you but bring you to the prologue, and I've mentioned this before when Jesus had spoken about the light and being with you for a while. Remember, 
It says here in verse 5 of chapter 1 of the prologue, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But as we're reading, it's trying like heck, is it not? <laughs> it's doing all it can to overcome Jesus. It's, it's, it, you can see it working overtime, working so hard. All the forces of, he- of earth are trying, and even the, of darkness, trying to overtake Jesus here. It's, they're, they're trying to overcome this light. And we see it happening in everyone that is coming into Jesus. We're thankful that it is not happening to all, but to every group of people that we've seen, we've seen that they are trying to snuff this out. And so we see that John tells us from the very beginning that you're going to watch, you're going to read this story, you're going to hear about this story, you're going to read this gospel, and you're going to see that darkness is trying to snuff it out, but it will not overcome it. But it'll keep on trying. And that's what John, uh, John tells us, uh, records the words of Jesus here. Walk while you have the light. Well, who is the light? It is not just reason. It's just not enlightening. It's Jesus. And while he is with you and while he is presenting himself to you, embrace him, apprehend him, take him for yourself. Because he says, lest that, that darkness actually does overcome you. And that's what happen, that's happening in the world. It happens today that, that the darkness is trying to overcome, is trying to snuff out Jesus. It's happening in every sphere of life and from every person, from every nationality across the earth. There are people who are actively working to snuff out the light. Even in churches there are people who are trying to snuff out the light of Christ. Because he is presenting himself, if the word of God is being presented as it is, it's impossible to not see that Jesus is the only way, is the only truth, is the only life that God offers that is everlasting and it has any hope. People do have hope in the world, but it is a, as Daryl said, a futile hope. It's a hope that's vain, that's empty, that's meaningless, that takes them nowhere. It's hope. It's real hope. It's their hope. People have all kinds of hope. But it's not hope that's going to take them anywhere. And we're trying to do this as we present the gospel, that there is another hope, and there's a hope in only one person, and it's Jesus. And that's what John's gospel is all about. We see that there are there is now we're coming close to this Passover time, as it says here, six days in chapter uh, twelve. He tells us that we're coming up to that week before the Passover, and throngs of people are coming to to the to the temple area. Throngs of people are coming to Jerusalem, thousands upon thousands upon thousands. There's, it's I can't I don't want to say a number because I don't know the number. I just know there's lots of people coming. Uh, so much room that you can't even walk. There's just so many people in Jerusalem at this time. And they're coming, as it says here, in John, as John tells us in chapter uh, 11, verse 55, they're coming to purify themselves because according to the law and because of ritual, it takes sometimes, they, some people go through seven days of purification. So you can see why there are so many people coming and they're around Jesus and around that area during this time frame. But you're seeing that these people are following Jesus. Now, I don't want to discount what uh, we see that Mary does, and I don't want to discount where we were called Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus. We're going to look at those, but really what I'm focusing on is verses 20 on, where he says, Now among those who went to worship at the feast were some of the Greeks. Because what did they say? Sir, we want to see Jesus. Now, I know, you know, You've, if anybody who stood behind the pulpit at First Press, that's a plaque, which is, I'm sure, not unique to just First Press, but it says, Sir, we would see Jesus. To remind everybody, whoever stands behind the pulpit, it's not about you. It's about people here. They, if they don't want to see Jesus, they need to see Jesus. And so here we see, notice this phrase from verse, verse 19. So the Pharisees who didn't like the new guy in town because their gig was getting knocked out, said to one another, you see that we're gaining nothing. Jesus is gaining all the time. Look, the world is going after him. And and who are the people who are next going to see Jesus? Greeks. 
The world is coming after Jesus, and John says, yep, you're right, here comes the Greeks. Pretty, pretty cool how he transitions into that statement of saying, yes, you're right, not only, Jew, not only the Jews, but also the Jews are looking for a king. The Gentiles don't have that hope for that kind of Messiah in their religion or whatever they were, but these people were looking, they were looking for Jesus. Now, they understood in a sense, who Jesus was, because why would they be looking for him? But they wanted to see Jesus for who Jesus is. We want to see Jesus. We've seen him. We're seeing him riding the town. Now, these are not Greeks who are Jews. These are Greeks who are Greeks, but they, the Bible may, have called, may call them God-fearing Greeks. They're God-fearing. They've they found the bankruptcy of mythology, and they don't like the morality of Greeks. They don't like of where they're going, so they like the structure, they like the morality, they like the hope of what the Judaism is all about, but they have not succumbed or not given up to becoming a Jew. So that's why there's the courtroom of Gentiles. Remember, Jesus went in there and overturned all the money changers and everything because, you know, who are the Gentiles? You know, they're chumps. Who cares about them? You know, I mean, we don't care. We'll just, you know, they're, they're not real people anyway. You know, you realize how, how much the Jews hated the Gentiles and how much the Gentiles really hated the Jews. So God provides a place of worship and a place of prayer and a place for people who are God-fearers as Gentiles to go. And you see how, dis, how much disregard the Jews had for the Gentiles, you know, they wanted to go there, and they wanted to be in this, 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 uh, this place at this time. And so whether they, they, they knew who Jesus was, because they, were, they seemed to be where? In the temple area. They seemed to be in Jerusalem at this time of the Passover. We've seen Jesus, but we want to see Jesus, and that's key. Do you really want to see Jesus? And that's the question we need to ask other people, if you haven't asked yourself that. Do you really want to see Jesus? And who is the Jesus you really want to see? And that's a question I think that we can really honestly ask people. Is it the Jesus that you have been raised with? Is it the Jesus that you have been told about by somebody else? Or is it the Jesus of the Bible who has revealed himself to us? That's the Jesus. You want, that's the Jesus that you, you know, uh, that's the Jesus I'm going to tell you about. So the, the Jews come, excuse me, the Greeks come, and they say, they come to Philip and Andrew because those, these two guys have Greek names. So they're going to go to a Greek named guy who can have some sense of, well, we're not going to be intimidated by, so they're going to go to these guys and say, and they take them to say, Jesus, these guys want to see you. And so everything that the, the, Gentile, the Jews and the Pharisees were upset about is actually happening here. And then, then you notice what Jesus is saying, these words. In the later part here, he says, and Jesus answered them. You want to see me? Then let me tell you. Now, remember the first sign. Let's go back to the first sign. The wedding, the wain, the wedding at Cana. Well, we don't have to turn there. I can tell you. The wedding at Cana. What did, what did Jesus tell his mother? Woman, what do I have to do with this? What? It is not my hour. Then we turn, being going back so far, let's turn to chapter 7. Turn to chapter 7, verse 30. And remember the Feast of Booths. And verse we see, this, he says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And then we turn to chapter 8, Verse 20, and we see again this theme. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. What does Jesus say here? It's here. It's arrived. Now that the world is coming after Jesus, now that the Gentiles are coming into Jesus, it inaugurates this whole thing of, wow, his hour has come. He's drawing, as he says here, he's drawing the world to himself. He's not, people are not driving people to Jesus. I can't drive anybody to Jesus. You can't drive anybody to Jesus. People have to be drawn to Jesus. 
kings and popes and people of power of history have tried to drive people to Jesus. And you and I know how disastrous that is. We don't drive anybody to Jesus. We draw them. How do they? Well, the Holy Spirit draws them, of course. But we present Jesus as the first epistle of John. We testify that we have seen him, that we have heard him, that he was real, that he is, he is everything that he said about himself. That's what John starts out that very first epistle with. And that's what this book is about, being a witness and testifying. And so Jesus has been doing that all this time for, for these chapters of his ministry. Now almost, it's going to be the third Passover, the third year of his ministry. We see Jesus now coming to this place and saying, the hour, it's, it, it has come. It is the, the hour it has come. That's really what it says. It can't, it's here. And then he says, for the Son of Man to be glorified. And truly, truly, I say to you, and Jesus now tells them what kind of ministry it will now be. Now notice, people want to see who Jesus is. And we've seen people having reactions to Jesus, as we've talked about that happens in our real life, and we also see different views of who Jesus is. We're going to see in the beginning of chapter 12 that Mary is so overcome and is so great, uh, grat has so much gratitude toward Jesus about what he had done for Lazarus that notice she does something, whether she has the intent or not, I think she does, other people do too, seem to understand that after seeing Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and Jesus saying to her, hey, you know, this death isn't his real problem and it's not your only problem. Your real problem is, is that is, is spiritual death. That's your real problem. You're going to die and you're going to need the clothes like your brothers we took off of them. But there's going to come a day when you're never going to need those clothes anymore because you're never going to be dead. You're going to be eternally alive forever. And she got it. And so what does she do? She takes this expensive perfume that comes from India or the Himalayas. And here it is in, in Bethany. And whether these people had money or not, I don't know. Because lots of people think that you know they, this family had money. Whether they lived by themselves and whose house it was and whatever. This, this, this was a year's wage. So whatever the year's, year's wage was then and whatever a year's wage now is, is a lot of money. And, and what does she do? She just, she just liberally just throws it on Jesus' feet. But actually... Other places talks about it. He was, and Jesus says, she anointed me. And it says, leave her alone, because Jesus sees that whether she understands it or not, she's anointing me for my burial. And, and so let us keep not only this event, but let's keep the smell of what's going on and the fragrance of going on. Let it take you not only here, because people, there's going to come a time when you're going to feel so rejected and feel that all hope is lost because you're going to forget about everything I've said and you're just going to focus on me dead in the tomb. So remember the smell. As he says, the, the, the perfume just filled the room. And we need our lives filled with that understanding of the fragrance of who Christ is and what he has done. And Jesus, while he's doing it, he doesn't say, whoa. He doesn't say, you know, Jesus is is a, the most humblest man and the most gracious servant, and he came to serve. But in this case, he didn't stop her. You know, Jesus has stopped a lot of people from doing a lot of things and saying a lot of things. He doesn't stop her doing this because he sees, like Caiaphas, who didn't know when he was uttering the words that he uttered last week, about it is better that one man die for the nation. And here is Mary anointing Jesus and actually saying, Mary, what's Mary doing? She's anointing me for burial. This is who she is. And in a couple days, Joseph of Arimathea is going to be actually preparing Jesus' body for the tomb with fragrances. And then we see in contrast this very socially-minded individual called Judas Iscariot. And notice how John does not want you to forget who he is. Every time John, you know, this really isn't so much about what Mary does. It's more about reminding us, too, of making sure who Judas is. 
John cannot wait to make sure in parentheses. I'm going to put in parentheses because everybody's going to know this guy's a rat. <laughs> this is who John is. He says he's about to betray him. And I want to tell you one thing. You may think he's got a noble voice, but let me tell you what he's talking about because this guy's been putting his hand in the, pan, in, in the till for quite a while. And he's ripped off because he knows that 300 denarii goes a long way and that could have been his money and he can't have it now because she's stupid. And she wasted it all over everything. And Jesus is going, leave her alone. You don't know Judas. Well, of course, why would you know? Why would he know? Why do people think that us coming to church or us spending time in the word of God or us doing gracious things to other people or trying to be the light of Christ to the world has any meaning whatsoever? So we see these responses of who, to who Jesus is. Then we see in the triumphal entry that John wants everybody to know that, notice in verse 6, his disciple, verse 16 of chapter 12, his disciples did not understand these things at first. And then verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet Jesus, why? Was because they had heard about the sign that he had done. Not that he was the Messiah, but that he was a miracle worker, and he's the guy that we want to elect to be the next king. And so what do they do? They go back to Zechariah 9, and they, they talk about, actually, they, 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 uh, Psalm 118, where it says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is this song of, of, uh, of this time of year when they drove into the procession of Psalm 118. And so they say Jesus found a donkey, and Jesus goes in, and he wants to make sure that everybody sees that he's fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9. And what does it say in Zechariah chapter 9? It says that he also, this leader also, sheds his blood for his people to set the prisoners free based upon the covenant that he has with his people. Now, this person's got to die. But these people don't want Jesus to die. They want him to be king. He's the greatest thing around. So he is somebody that they're jumping to and praising and trying to make sure that he has all these people around him to support him. That's why John says in verse 13, they took palm branches of palm trees, which is a sign of national fervor. Now, yes, during the Feast of Tabernacles, I mean, we talked about how they would do the processions and, and, and uh, they would wave palm branches, but... John is telling us here that this is a sign of national fervor going on. you got to realize that if the, the darkness is trying to overcome it, this is the peak of where we see now this fever pitch of hatred toward Jesus. So much hatred that we gotta, we got to take Lazarus out of the picture. we got to keep his mouth shut. And then if he's not dead, then we may have to take Mary and Martha out of the thing. But you know what? There were lots of people watching this, and they saw Lazarus come out. So there's a lot of people that they had to have contracts sort of knock off. But you and I know one thing at a time. We try to get rid of the evidence. So we see that this response to who Jesus is is either one of understanding and giving graciously, regardless of what it all means. We give it to Jesus because he's worth everything. What's a, what's a year's wage? In light of what Jesus has done, well, you and I can know, oh, I have a different way to Pastor Jim. Yeah, I agree. Year's wage is a lot. But Martha's, Mary's just going forward and just showing that if he has done that, he means everything to us. But to Judas, and even in the other, in the other Gospels, the disciples were a little ticked off going, what is she doing? Because they didn't understand it. And then John tells us that during the Passover, during this Palm Sunday scenario, which we look at, John says, don't get, these, don't get excited about these people. Because remember, in chapter 1, we see that Jesus, or maybe it was chapter 2, I don't remember at the moment. Jesus says, they, they, I mean, John says to him, and the many came to follow Jesus, and, but Jesus did not care and Jesus knew their hearts so he didn't get too excited about who they were he didn't get excited about the crowds because he knew that they were focusing on the sign so this is where we see John presenting 
all the different, again, the, the reactions to and the darkness trying to overcome and trying to snuff out who Jesus is. And we see that Mary has it right. And we see that Judas doesn't. And we see the people don't have it right. And now we see the Greeks getting it. And Jesus is saying, he's not saying anymore. Why didn't Jesus say, wait a minute, you people. You got me. I, I'm not running for office for king of Israel. Well, wait a minute. I am running for office for the king of Israel, but you don't get the other point. I'm also the savior and the redeemer of the people, of the world. He didn't do that. Why? Because they were exactly right. He is the king of Israel. He didn't say, stop, stop. He was saying, this is a prophecy that is going to be fulfilled. This is exactly who Zechariah was talking about. Me, riding on a, horse, riding on a donkey, entering the city of Jerusalem, which is now in the grips of Satan. Because remember, functionally, judiciously, in a, in a, in a, a response, Jesus has turned his back. Jesus has turned his back upon the people. He's turned his back upon the temple. And he is condemning it. And Jesus you know, goes on and he says, there's a teaching moment, folks. He goes, he goes, whoever loses his life, whoever hates his life. Now, we need to be careful that we don't take these to the extreme. Because we can say to somebody, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. And lots of people, including myself, have hated my have hated their life at some time. Have you not? I've hated my life. Hated it. To the point that I wanted to vacate the premises. I've told you that. I've hated life. Now we can look at this and say, oh wow, because I hate life, you know, God's going to love me for it. The actual, this isn't talking about what's going on in your life. He is talking about the fact that you hate life where you are at the center of it. That's the kind of life we're to hate. We are to hate the life that puts us at the center of the universe. And you know what? You and I still have problems because you and I know where the center of the universe is some days. It's where I'm standing. And so we do things in the name of Jesus. We nice to people. We say kind things to people. We, do, you know, we help people out. And then we, you know, when people don't reciprocate, we sometimes, don't we get a little upset? How ungrateful that person is. Why didn't he even say thank you? I mean, being a pastor, all the things I've done for people over the years, even on Sunday mornings, people don't say thank you some days. I mean, you say thank you to the person who bags your groceries, but you don't say thank you to a pastor who has just opened their hearts up to you and opened the word of God up to you that you forget to even say thank you? No, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying, you see how we forget? We get so focused up on ourselves that we just realize that somebody's opened this book up to us and we just walk out the door. So remember that for the next pastor that comes. <laughs> Surprise them. But it's personal, folks. We do things. We help people. And they don't say thank you. Sometimes we don't have a problem with it. Sometimes we do. Not even a thank you. But listen, folks, it's darkness, and it's light, it's spiritual warfare. We've got to remember this. We've got to remember this. And if we do it for Jesus, then it doesn't make any difference what people say. If he chooses to use our love and use our moments of grace toward other people, and they don't take it, we aren't to take it personal. Because if it's for him, if we put money in the basket, it's no longer our money. Correct? I mean, it's, no money, it's not our money to begin with. But we, we tell ourselves when we put it in the basket, it's his money. We had somebody, I mean, I've told you this before, we had somebody come into church and visit the church one Sunday and took the collection plates. We had them up the front of the church, and they actually, we were in the back for a fellowship time, and somebody actually took all the money and took everything we left out. And we didn't do that anymore, but we, for years there was no issue. Somebody actually took and ripped all the checks, took all the money out, put the envelopes and the checks behind the organ, and just took the cash. So we had to call everybody up and say, well, we don't know what you gave, but it's still in God's hands. 
You know, it's still not your money. So for some reason, God allowed this person to come take this money. May God use that money to either harden their heart even more, or we hope that God would convict them to think that they'd done something wrong. But it's, it's God's money, it's God's time, it's God's everything. So this is where Mary comes up and showing that this doesn't make a difference. I mean, yes, Jesus is worth it all. Even at her own expense. We see the Jews, I mean, the Jews, the Greeks coming to Jesus. We want to see Jesus. Jesus says, this is the hour, folks. And he, so he says to them, he goes, Greeks, you want to see who I am? You've got to understand that I've come to die. And you have got to come and follow not the cross and not the pastor and not the church, but you've got to follow Jesus of dying to himself and being obedient to the Father, as he says here, whoever loves his life loses it, meaning that it's over. You're going to lose it anyway. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it forever. Because why? Because Jesus gives us another new life. He redeems our life. He gives us a whole new purpose for doing everything and seeing everyone and seeing everything. I used to, I used to know Christ this from a worldly way, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I used to see Christ in a very horizontal way. But when the vertical met the horizontal, when the Holy Spirit changed my heart, it changed me. I no longer look at things that way. I no longer look at people that way. I no longer look at anything that way again. That's what happens when we lose our life, is when we find our life. But you know what? It makes sense to you. Everybody can nod their head now, because why? Because those who have found life, it makes sense. But for those of you who don't, haven't made that decision and had the understanding, you can, people nod their head, and I'm not accusing anybody here, I'm just doing it in a general sense. People nod their head going, oh yeah, that makes sense, but they really don't understand what it means. Why? Because he says here, I am the one, as he says in, um, I'm going to draw people, all people to myself. But notice here, Jesus says in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father, the father will honor him. You want a life that God is pleased with. Whoever making sure, we got to make sure that people understand who God is. Again, that's a definable term, is it not? I follow God. I believe in God. Wow. Is that not a conversation to have or what? Who's God? How do you determine who God is? He says here, he's, and now Jesus is in verse uh, 27 says, Now my, my soul is troubled. Remember that word we talked about, troubled before? When he saw, he saw what? Maybe those two possibilities well, I think they are distinct possibilities, and they are, are, are the same issue, is one that he's just so angry and so upset at what sin has done that he's brought Mary and Martha to tears because sin has, has killed uh, 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 Lazarus and put him in a tomb, and that's the effect of, of our disobedience against God. That's God's wrath and judgment coming on people, and he cried and he wept and he was troubled about that in his spirit. But here we see now, Oh, and then again, the other term is meaning that, that, that Jesus has been de, 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 uh, defining who he is, and yet he still sees unbelief in Mary and Martha and the crowds. So he's disturbed. Here he's disturbed again. What is he disturbed about? My, now my soul is troubled. About what? Who's he talking to? He's talking, about, he's talking to the Father here. He goes, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Jesus is talking about and telling them what his death is going to be, and what the next week of his life left on earth is going to be, and it troubles Jesus. Jesus has been troubled about this the whole time. This isn't new. You know, Jesus did not go, you know, hi-ho, hi-ho, off the work I go. I'm going to the cross. Ha-ha! <laughs> I mean, he had, this, was, this is troubling to him. This is something that causes him great anguish. It's not only in the garden. This is a good indicator. We see Jesus in the garden and sweating these drops. People say real blood or like blood. And he was agonizing over what? He was agonizing over the fact that his father was going to turn his face upon him because Jesus was going to take the sin of the world upon him. 
Jesus is troubled before he gets to Garden Gethsemane. We see it right here. This, Jesus is not just taking this with a glance. He's realizing that this is, he's talking about it, but he's saying, this is the hour I've come from. I've been talking about this hour for the last three years, and it's here. And what shall I say? Father, take this cup from me. Father, take this hour away from me. He goes, no, this is the very purpose I came. Father, he says, glorify your name. Not anything else. Glorify your name, Father. And what is his name? His name is embodied in Jesus. His name is forgiveness. His name is mercy. It's how God has revealed himself to us in so many different ways in the Bible. Your name means something to some people. When they think of your name, an image goes through their mind. Now, your name has nothing to do with it because your name is the name of somebody else. But when they think of you, they think of, or they think of Hope Church, they think of, or you think of O.J. Simpson, you think of, right? You think of Billy Graham, you think of Adolf Hitler, you know? I mean, all those names conjure up. When he says, glorify your name, everything that you have defined yourself to be, Father, glorify your name. That's what he's saying. And then a voice came from heaven, and he says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And again, Jesus, they, you know, people didn't understand what it was. It was thunder, but it was them letting the people understood that something at that moment happened. And here's this great transition of history that now people's, I wonder if the hair in the back of their neck stood up. And Jesus says, this voice was not for your sake, not for mine. Now, he says, now. Notice now. He's not in the future. He's saying now judgment has come. Now is the judgment of this world. Now we're the ruler of this world. And Jesus is the ruler of all the universe, everything that's been created. So the ruler of this world is nothing compared to who Jesus is. Greater is he that is in the world than he. Greater is he that is... Than, than he is in the world. I mean, Jesus is greater. And so here, notice how Jesus puts Satan in his place. The writer of uh, Ephesians calls the ruler of this world the prince of this world, the prince of this earth. Notice that he's not the king because he's the prince. And a prince doesn't out-trump a king, but Jesus is the king. Turn with me to John chapter 3. That very famous passage of John 3.16, to get an understanding. Remember, we looked at all this stuff before, but it's always good to make notes and go back again because all these things keep on coming back up again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name. Of the only Son of God. And this is judgment. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. And that's what Jesus is saying right here. When he's talking about the light, he's saying to them, Now this is the judgment of the world that I've talked about before. He says, When I am lifted up, what does that mean? When Jesus is physically pushed upon the cross and held up by the Roman soldiers. And then when he is resurrected, and then when he is exalted in his ascension, when he is lifted up, remember, verse 14, 16, the disciples did not understand this when? Until Jesus was glorified. When I am lifted up, then he says, I am going to draw all people to myself. He could have said, I will draw Israel to myself. I will draw. He just said all people because we've seen that it says whoever, whoever comes to Christ, the world is Jesus' desire to save. The world meaning not only Jews but Gentiles as well. You've got to be careful that we're not talking about universalism here. Jesus did not fight, die for the sins of the world, therefore that everybody dies and goes to heaven. That's what universalism is. You can't, you can't believe that. He didn't die for the sins of the entire world, and now everybody goes to heaven because he didn't. Because he, he says he died for the sins of the world, and whoever believes in him, and he says this, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're condemned. If you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. You see the difference. You see that there's a choice here. 
There's a choice he have to make, and that's what he says here, that it's an individual choice. And he said this to show that what kind of death he was going to die. And that's when we go on and we see here that he says the sun must be lifted up. These people didn't understand what he was talking about. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. This is what I tell people when I talk to them about the Lord. I am telling you now and I'm giving you the light of the gospel right now. You can embrace it or you can turn your back on it. But realize that there's to every decision that you make in life, there's a consequence. Are you willing to take the consequence? Now, I'm not trying to scare you into salvation, but I just want to let you know that you could get in a car accident, you could have a brain aneurysm, you could have a brain tumor, you could have all this stuff going on right now and kill you dead, and then you're in trouble. But maybe God's going to preserve your life for a long time and keep on showing himself to you. I don't know. I'm not God. I don't know. But I'm just telling you that that is what the decision that you have to make. And I think we have every right to tell people that thing. We have every right to tell people because this is a life and death situation. We are not ashamed of the gospel. And that's what the gospel is. You are either judged or you're saved. You either believe in Jesus or you hate Jesus. And then ultimately he means that God hates sinners and everybody will go to hell who does not follow Jesus. And that's what hell is. So you can see the, you can see the responses as John closes this book of signs. The last, we're not done yet, we still got one, one, one uh, passage left to go. But Jesus is closing that and transitioning that and his public ministry is going to be coming to an end. And now he focuses his time not on everybody else, but he focuses his time on the disciples because he wants them to really understand because you realize when they saw Jesus hanging on the cross, they were, de- they, they were defeated. They said, Another, uh, it just doesn't work. It didn't work. It did nothing. He wasn't what we thought he was. And that's what we've got to be careful. Remember Peter says, prepare yourselves Gird up your loins. Prepare yourself in 1 Peter. Make sure that you're ready for when trials and tribulations come. Jesus is trying to prepare, when you get to chapter 13 on, he's trying to prepare the disciples as much as possible for what is going to happen so they don't lose sight of who Jesus is. Now, by God's grace, what does God do? God began in that work in him. God kept him, except for, except for the one who was meant to be a traitor, when that was Judas. And Jesus says, go do, go ahead, do what you were created to do. And that was to betray me. I mean, that's what, that was what, you know, Judas is, he made a decision. What was he driven by? 30 pieces of silver. And he was ticked off because Jesus wasn't the Messiah that he thought he was. And some people get mad at Jesus because he's not the man that they think he is. He's not the Jesus that they thought he is. So they just say, Forget about it. But we need to pray that God is relentless and God is tenacious and God is this, this person, this God, this Savior who continually, and we know that he will, which is encouraging to me and you, that if he has called you to be his son or called you to be his daughter, then he will never, ever stop until he convinces you and persuades you and draws you and changes your heart to go, wow. This is a deal. This is a deal. You know, you've gotten deals on things. And all of a sudden it goes, it's like, wow, I can't refuse it. That's a deal. The the excitement comes in your heart and your mind. You go, wow, this is a good deal. Jesus presented. It's not that you're worth the deal. It's because he loves you that much that he gave you this deal. I think that's how we present it to people. I think we need to be, again, hounding people in the sense of, of because God is a hounding God when it comes to drawing his elect to himself. It can be discouraging. I understand. I get discouraged a lot of times when your children, when you get discouraged, when you tell your children something over and over again, and then, you know, all of a sudden they continue to do the same things they do over and over again. Or the people that you work with, or the people in your family, or the people you've told. I mean, again, this person at work I've talked to for how many years, and I talked to him again, and I talked to him this week, and he came up with the same trash about what his belief in eternal life was. It's like, have you not heard anything I've said? 
And the answer is no, because God hasn't given them the ears to do that. And so we walk away, not, not, not walking away saying, I give up, but the opportunity is, is still waiting. Lord, if you give me an opportunity, keep on. You never know. You never know what's going to happen. One day, God may bring the light bulb on and put juice to it and watch it light up. But it's his work, not our work. Jesus is this persistent God who continues to tell even the people who he knows is in darkness, he still gives them the opportunity to say yes or no. So, I hope you see now this Gospel of John, how we're looking at it collectively, how John is writing it, why John is writing it, the themes, how the prologue is very important. We see the hour, we see Jesus talking about this hour, it's here. The clocks of history were waiting for this hour. They couldn't wait for this hour to come. I'm glad it came. I hope you're glad it came. We have to, we have to just be thankful that God let us, the alarm clock, go on when that hour happened for us. So let's pray. Dear God, I, I, I pray that you would take these words this morning of familiar passages and... Uh, Words that we've read many times together yet, but Lord, I pray that as we look at them together, we see how they are, are, are uh, put together by your servant, why you ordained these words to be uh, forever, be able for us to read, that we have the ability to talk about them, that we have the ability to have our minds changed, to have our lenses cleaned, to recalibrate our understanding of who you are, Jesus, that we want to see you, Jesus. It is something now that we desire every week. We desire every time there's an opportunity that we want to see who you are, Jesus. And we thank you that the hour has come when you died on the cross, and the hour came when you changed our hearts, and the hour is coming when you will redeem us. Lord, we look forward to that time frame that you have ordained. And so, Lord, I pray that you use the people here at Hope to have hope, in your sovereignty, and that you are sovereign over hope, church. And that, Lord, that you will raise the right man to be the pastor, to be the teaching elder of Hope Church, that it will be the man that you desire to be coming with his family if that happens, so that he will be the instrument of your grace, that he will be the person who will continue to talk about this redemptive history that you've unfolded for us this great news of the gospel. And Lord, that you will open up opportunities for these men and women to be able to have a Jesus for people to see that is real. We ask this in your name, dear Jesus. Amen. Let's turn to... Uh,